0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to this month's CCSI podcast titled CCSI Got Tech Podcast Series Number 10, titled Incident Response. I'm Larry Bianculli. I'll be today's host. And with me, we have, again, Brakovic, who's a chief information security officer for one of our financial services customers here in the area, and Matt Pascucci, who is a CCSI's cybersecurity practice manager. And together the conversation that will be following the topic of incident response is sure to absolutely be uh, providing a lot of good information to our listeners. Uh, Incident response is one of those topics that uh, is changing and changing fast. So we're going to try to uh, hit on some of the topics that uh, we've been asked to hit on, things like uh, how to build a qualified team. Can you build a qualified team with existing Uh, employees, security uh, team members, how to prepare and train your team, and we'll be going through a whole series of questions that'll take us right through to how does the cloud change incident response, and what does the future look like? So with that said, I'd like to welcome again, and Matt, gentlemen, good morning. Let's get started. So on today's topic. So why don't you kick it off, Matt? So again, so
1: a few things, you know, we've been chatting about this on the side uh, more than a couple times, but, you know, trying to build out incident response teams, you know, particularly uh, on a a budget or with something you might currently have already in place. A few things that we're looking for, I mean, i got a couple questions that, you know, other clients have asked us, but, you know, one of the first ones is, you know, how do you build a team of qualified incident response, you know, resources with the current staff that you currently have?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think in a, in a lot of cases, you probably have a lot of those resources already. So it's just a matter of um, identifying them. You know, having qualified people in, in the various lines of business who have specific responsibilities and are very knowledgeable about those business lines, uh, you know, you're in a good place to, to begin with. You know, after that, uh, obviously, you want to you leverage those employees' various varying perspectives. Um, you know, have them each bring something unique to the table. And... Uh, they're looking at things that that from the the technical side and, and the uh, security side we're not always focused on. So you'll have uh, employees in the business line focused on you know customer support, HR issues, legal issues, financial impact to to the institution, which is you know a, a huge risk to to uh, all companies. You know having those team members involved, identified part of the uh, part of the overall incident response process is is definitely critical. And then it, my job as CISO is to kind of uh, uh, bring that, that whole group together, be the, be the coordinator of that group, and then obviously attempt to identify gaps where we have gaps of knowledge and then go out to third parties or, or uh, external resources um, uh, when we identify those gaps in order to, to cover them. So you being the CISO, you're the one who's kind of wrangling people, getting that IR team together,
1: focusing on, on the particular, you said, perspectives of technology or potentially legal or you know, other groups, maybe even compliance. But so when you have that there and you're wrapping that around there, how do you prepare training for an incident response team? Because there's no real one training, like this is incident response, you know, 101, um, which they do have. But how do you actually go out there and prepare your
2: team um,
1: for, uh, for incidents?
2: Um, I mean, so I think preparation starts from, like I said, having them involved in, in the creation of the plan. I think once they become involved, they're much more invested and, and you know, they, they, they become a part of the, part of the response. Um, you know, after that, uh, you, you want to you kind of take the plan that you've come up with and obviously build some flexibility into it because you can't foresee every potential incident that, that's going to come your way. Once you kind of have the, the, the rough outline of the plan with some, some guidance and then some, some flexibility built in and, and there's room for creativity coming from the team. Then you just, you just test. I mean, you, you, you test, test, test through tabletop exercises. Purple teaming is something that we're looking at. So purple teaming is a combination of, um, a red team, which is your, you know, your ethical hacker, your pen tester who's actually coming to your institution with a real attack and then bringing the blue team uh, on the back end of that, which is the response side. Um, you know, how to identify, detect, contain that and respond to that, to that attack. So with the the purple teaming and and the tabletops, you know,
1: those, those seem to be something very important because you want to be able to have that upfront and ready, it's like at the forefront of your mind so that it's not like when we do have an incident, you know, I got to remember how to do this. You kind of want to have that muscle memory there. You know, how important is it for tabletop exercises? How frequently do you use purple teams? Do you, you know, do that as a service? Is that someone that's kind of sitting in there as well? And what do you kind of gain out of that? And you know, do you particular use cases? You say like, hey, we're going to test, you know, this part of our IR plan today, and you know, maybe next week or, or next month or next quarter, we're going to set up another tabletop exercise. Like, how do you how do you do that? And what do you see?
2: Um, obviously, testing is critical. Our goal is to test at least quarterly, um, whether it be you know, a detailed uh, a full out exercise or, or something a little more small scale. We, we like to just kind of pull out the document, you know, pull out the incident response plan, dust it off and, and just kind of read through it every once in a while as a group. So that's that's the goal. Uh, you know, it all depends on your resources, um, you know, how, how much time you have to do these things. So that's kind of where, you know, it's going to be different for every company, but it has to be pretty often. The, the purple teaming is something we're, we're kind of beginning to move into. Obviously, that's going to be, um, obviously, it's recommended, but, you know, budget and resources is a concern there as well. So, I'd say purple teaming less frequent, but um, if you can just kind of get an exercise together and talk through a scenario just at a tabletop level, um, I I would recommend doing that at least quarterly. Got
1: it. Now, from an internal resources or third-party perspective, are you trying to build your, your IR team all internal? Do you have a retainer with someone who might have, like, forensic experience where... You know, it might not be as uh, achievable internally, um, and for the the third party like purple teaming and tabletops, are you doing that internally? Are you having like a third party kind of play that intermediary?
2: Yeah. So, so like I mentioned, you'll you'll find you'll be able to find a lot of the knowledge on staff, but w- when you identify those gaps, and usually the way to identify gaps is to kind of go through tabletop tests. That's one of yeah. the goals of a tabletop, right? Is to identify where, where you're weak uh, as a team and, you know, where you can kind of use, leverage some vendors to, to assist with. Um, so yeah, we have, you know, we've identified gaps. We, we know that, um, for example, from a legal standpoint, we went out to a outside counsel, um, who has a lot of experience with, um, working with financial institutions on in, you know incident response and we have him on retainer and, and it's been a great resource as mm-hmm. someone to kind of, uh, um, advise on legal issues, if we needed to, on, on a response. In addition, I've actually, we've involved um, third parties such as such as him on the legal side in, in actually um, leading certain exercises based on his experiences, you know, things see, he's seen out there in the real world, and brought back and, and kind of challenged us as a group with, um, with uh, how to respond to a, an event, you know, more of a case study type of thing, an event that's actually occurred, where you can you know, some in some cases, what the right and wrong decision was. Um, mm-hmm. Then, yeah, definitely on the forensic side. You know, as much as as much as um, we'd we'd love to hire the the real forensics experts mm-hmm. and and have those guys on staff, it's just financially it doesn't always make sense. Sure. Uh, it, it just makes a lot more sense financially to purchase that service as on an as-needed basis. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we do go out to a. Um, a forensics firm who has a lot of experience, as well as dealing with cyber attacks and breaches and and has the ability to uh, advise us in a a way that's, you know, we kind of put a lot of faith in them and, and, uh, you know, they they lead us in the right direction in a lot of tests and and in some, you know, real life uh, uh, incidents as well.
1: Yeah, I I mean, most of the time I think we're seeing exactly that from our customer base, is it's kind of a mixture of internal resources you know, a third party having a retainer or someone that you're bringing in from like a forensic standpoint to do it. So that's very common from, from what we've been seeing here as well. Um, and you bring it back again, you mentioned legal too. So you know, with your legal and cyber insurance teams, you know, are they heavily involved with the IR process? Uh, in the past, I've run third party tabletops and it's always part of the issue is it's great. You can get the guys in there and it's technical and you're getting these guys and they're going, they're digging deep into it. And they get the understanding and a lot of times what I've noticed, and this this might be from the ones that I've done, is that it always breaks down when it gets into the legal area or the insurance area or how do we actually take, you know, um, what, what laws do we you know, have to start looking at right now based off some of the data that might have been compromised. Um, but you know, a lot of the tabletops and a lot of these issues that we're talking about now, once it hits the fan, a lot of times it's the the legal and cyber teams are, or cyber insurance teams are kind of forgotten to an extent from what we've seen. How do you deal with that? And how do you wrap in your legal and cyber insurance when there's incident if needed?
2: Yeah. So like I said earlier, I, I have a strong belief that the incident response team needs to have representation from across the entire business. That's definitely critical. So yeah, our finance team, for example, is a, a big part of incident response. Um, and, and we actually in some cases, we actually take uh, results of our exercises that we go through and we feed them into the the bank's um, enterprise uh, capitals, you know capital stress testing to make sure that um, we're covered <clears throat> properly from an insurance standpoint in the cases where uh, where uh, we're not able to contain an event to the to the extent that we would like. So yeah, that's that's definitely become huge. Um, and from a legal standpoint, like I mentioned, um, there's a lot of advantages to having solid legal representation in any type of incident response. You know, there's there, there's a lot of, when you kind of get to the um, uh, chain of custody type issues, you know, you, you want to make sure that you're responding in a way that is, um, number one, protects the customer and our institution as much as possible, but also um, can kind of be Held up in a court of law in case you know law enforcement <clears throat> decides to go after someone that's attacking right. the institution.
1: So you did mention chain of custody, and so now that you might have a you know a retainer based off someone that's you know doing forensics for you, how do you work with them regarding that? So you know these these people might be coming in and assisting you at the same time. You know, do you have policy and procedure to you know make a call or to work with these people uh, as they as they're being brought into your organization? Mm-hmm.
2: Um, we do, and I, and I think there's some standards out there. So we will rely on, we'll, we'll have our legal communicate very closely with our forensics team to, to make sure that, that there is proper chain of custody and, and um, you know, the forensics and, and the logging that, that are required to launch a proper investigation, um, determine what happened, uh, and respond to it are followed. Yeah,
1: great. So a lot, of, a lot of this now is talking more like reactive, right? We're talking about you've had an incident, how are you going to respond to it? based off continuous monitoring and tools, and you know, do you have any recommendations on tools or just technology in general that you've seen work to lower like the MTTD and MTDR, you know, the meantime to detect and respond towards threats?
2: Yeah, I think, um, you know, your SIMs are, are probably becoming the primary tool um, at this point, but they're not, you know, they're not perfect. Uh, they're not all-encompassing solutions in all cases. So, so you do have to kind of layer uh, various technologies around a sim to to kind of cover the places where it's weak and one of those layers is, is definitely is it's your um, end users your that you know that human element there that's in a lot of cases able to identify anomalous activity early on so we actually take the approach where we train our users to to help us identify things as as early on as possible um, and report that in the right way which is a lot of institutions, in, in a lot of institutions, you, uh, an end user may be um, scared to say something or, or not know exactly how <laughs> to get that to the right person. So we, we definitely uh, focus on, on uh, employee training and, and awareness as well. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, my job from the Cecil perspective is to mm-hmm. kind of prioritize the, all these technologies. Obviously, you know, it's something I'm responsible for is identifying um where, where it makes most sense from a, a return on, it, on investment aspect and a budgetary aspect to make sure that we're spending spending and putting our resources, focusing our resources in, in the, the way that's best going to protect our environment. Got it. You know,
1: along the same lines with that logging and me, you know, memory analysis are incredibly huge when it comes to incident response. Uh, any suggestions on keeping that chain of custody with, or just the integrity of that data secure during an incident?
2: Yeah, I mean it's funny because in in the, in the forensics world and logging world, a lot of times you know the, the proper process may go against kind of your mm-hmm. gut instinct, right? Mm-hmm. So, gut instinct if you're being attacked, if you have a station being attacked, is to turn it off. That's not a, that's not <laughs> a recommended thing, right? You because you want to be able to access the uh, the system as is, and you know have access to the memory, which which um, in some cases could be erased if you turn it off. So. Uh, yeah, like I said, relying on relying on those those experts to come in and assist with that. Um, the, I think the goal in forensics is to be able to you know chronologically replay an event um, so that you can really ha- have a good sense of what happened. Like I said, that's huge. Yeah, yeah.
1: Now, when you write your your IR policy and procedures, you know a lot of times you have policy and procedure. You don't have compliance. They need you to go out there. You know, fulfill certain um, you know documentation. Who do you disseminate these, you know, IR plans to? You know, does everyone in IT get it? Do you just have like a SWAT team of people who are now taking it and understanding it? Or do you break it down even more so saying like, for DDoS, we're going to, you're going to get this or for any type of web application, you know, you're going to get this? Like, how do you divvy that up or do you not divvy it up?
2: No, we we actually, we do divvy it up. Um, We we do have one overarching policy that is kind of targeted towards the um, incident response team specifically. You know the members that are responsible for uh, actually responding to an incident, but then we have some kind of um, supplemental policies that are more targeted towards, like I mentioned earlier, either the end user. Um, you know how to report things. It's a, hmm. it's a simple, simple thing. Oh, but that's interesting. Yeah. yeah, exactly. A lot of end users may not know the reporting. Uh, you know who they report incidents to. So we have a separate policy, kind of geared towards them. And then, yeah, absolutely, we have a lot of a lot more policy and procedure geared towards the IT and security team um, on how to respond to incidents as well. So, I, I think it's important it, it, because the audiences in a, in a company can vary so much. I think it is important to not try to kind of preach everything at the same level, but really get into the detail you need to with specific uh, areas and, and groups of employees. Gotcha.
1: Now, you're talking about incidents You know and tracking incidents. One of the biggest things, you know, from a management perspective, is metrics, and you know, being able to, you know, manage and measure, you know, incidents, and, and maybe even the velocity of how quickly things have changed, or um, going back and doing a postmortem, and maybe things we could have done differently for this incident, or things that you know could have could have been, you know, solved before, you know, more proactive. Um, do you have any, you know, SLAs when it comes to incidents? Do you have anything in place saying? A, you know, if it's going to hit a certain time frame, it has to go up to executive management or just anything along those lines. And I guess it's another question as well: Do you keep those in your regular, you know, your regular service desk or your regular, you know, you know, ticketing control? Like, who gets that? And where are they? And how are they stored?
2: Right. So yeah, absolutely, we do. Obviously, we have a lot more. We have a lot less incidents than we do your regular service desks mm-hmm. and, and your, uh, you know, your technical requests. But um, they are tracked in a similar way. Definitely lessons learned are, are a part of our entire incident response life cycle. You know, obviously that's the, the the best way to learn is to to go through these things. so um, we definitely focus on that. And, and yeah, we do develop SLA. so our and my my recommendation would be when you have when you have an incident come in, when you begin to kind of look at something and, and you're just beginning to investigate it, risk rate that incident and, and we we provide some guidelines to the team to be able to kind of say, hey, this one is something, you know, this is something we identify based on our risk assessments as, as very high priority. So we're going to put a, a much um, smaller SLA on that one, and we want to respond to this one within an hour or two. Yeah. And, and a lot of that is working with the um, uh, whoever's managing your, your business continuity plan as well, right? Because a lot of that um, risk rating and incident is based on what systems and data it can potentially impact, which kind of goes back to business continuity Mm -hmm. and your business impact analysis. So you want to know, for example, if you have an incident that could impact the availability of your online banking system and and your SLA on the (laughs) business continuity side is four hours, you need to respond to that. That needs to be less. Immediately, it needs to be less. So
1: So the value of the assets that could potentially be exposed or, or hit is going to impact your SLAs. Absolutely. Got it. So another thing too that we've seen change quite a bit too as people are just moving towards the cloud and how Incident response changes in the cloud. You, you might not have access to everything. You might not have access to all the actual hardware in the cloud depending on your, your um, service deployment. How do you do that?
2: Yeah, I mean cloud just adds definitely adds another layer of complexity. Um and like you said your data is your data is not in your immediate possession anymore. So now you're going through a vendor to uh to kind of uh investigate and and uh remediate incidents. Um so yeah, I mean I think it all goes back to on on the cloud side, it goes back to um planning up front when you onboard a vendor or, you know, through your annual due diligence process, having, having a plan in place to monitor, um, cloud service providers on a, on some type of periodic basis, you know, risk, once again, risk-based. So as often as you feel you need to, um, to make sure that, um, they have, you know, they have SLAs in place and, and you can even put those in the contract and I would definitely recommend putting those in, in a contract to make, to make sure that, um, uh, your third parties are um, taking I- your incidents as, as seriously and, and kind of, uh, as you do, so yeah. that, that's huge.
1: Yeah, I think, I think you hit it right in the head, you know, with, with incident responses, it's kind of in the cloud, is going out there understanding, you know, depending on your service model, you know, is it going to be SaaS, PaaS, IS, um, getting understanding of where they are from a compliance standpoint, from a regulatory standpoint, um, and then, who has those responsibilities in the contract? You know, make sure it's delineated properly, and I think you hit it right in the head there. Right. That's, that's great. That's yeah. And that's, as, as, part that, um, as part of
2: that, as part of that due diligence process, you want to um, you you know upfront you want to review the company's um, audit reports if possible. Mm-hmm. Their their controls that they have in place to ensure that um, before something actually happens, that gain some comfort into the fact that. Um, they will be able to support you um, mm-hmm. if, if something did happen there.
1: And then to that point as well, you're hitting this again, but you find that there might be a hole As then that responsibility is, is on you as an organization to fill that hole or reduce that risk. Right. But yeah, absolutely. Um, the last question I have for you, which is one that I think people kind of skim over a lot when they're doing incident response, is you know how do you proactively work with law enforcement um, and any company compliance agencies as a proactive approach instead of a reactive? Cause I mean, the first time you want to be working uh, with law enforcement is before an incident. You don't want to be trying to find out, you know, the FBI's number or the Secret Service's number while you have an incident. You want to have that relationship built there. I've done that in the past; it's very beneficial. Um, but how do you do that?
2: Yeah, um, we actually have. So we actually have um, contact not only, uh, you know, a main line, but we actually have specific um, law enforcement individuals that we maintain as part of our incident response plan. Nice. So like you said, we know who to call, we know who to email, um, rather than talking to somebody for the first time when you're in a real, in a real crunch. So you have somebody who kind of already knows um, your environment and, and uh, a little bit about your plan. Um, I mean, staying in touch with law enforcement is huge, um, the best way to kind of see the types of attacks and the vectors that are coming through out there. So on a national level, um, I mean, we're involved with a lot of the uh, uh, kind of task forces out mm-hmm. there. So we're involved with the FBI InfraGuard, which is a task force um, between uh, law enforcement and business um and and also with the uh uh secret service electronic crimes uh task force yeah. um some similar kind of thing uh, at a more local level we're involved with uh, some some long island law enforcement information sharing groups as well. well one of them is long island fraud and forgery association information sharing group at a local level kind mm-hmm. of uh, a lot of banks involved so we get that peer perspective as well and um you know that's really it. I mean the the also the last piece would be the the um, uh, FSISAC is a is a yeah. corporation that the or, or an organization that yeah. we're involved with. Um, all the ISACs are great. I think the the financial services one which we're involved in has kind of been the the front runner, but a lot of a lot of information sharing going on there. A lot of early indicators of of attacks and. Um, uh, yeah, and, and in addition, they'll also kind of provide tabletop exercises in a lot That's of right. cases that institutions like us can kind of sit through. And, and once again, you know, it's a, it's about getting a different perspective. So mm-hmm. th- these these organizations provide provide that in many cases. And this is one of those those freebies that you know you don't have to go spend any money on. You can get it out there, and you can
1: make a really big dent in your IR plan right now by really pushing forward.
0: So yeah, this has been a great great exchange of information. Personally, I've learned a lot in listening to both Agim and Matt during this month's podcast episode. So, guys, unfortunately, this brings us to the uh, the conclusion for for today. But in summary, we we really did talk about a lot and a lot of very good and interesting bullet points that uh, falls underneath the heading of incident response. So, things like how to build a qualified team, how to prepare and train to have a better team how does cloud change incident response in general and probably about another seven or eight topics so uh again guys again i'd like to thank you matt I'd like to thank you for uh for leading this and uh we really did have a great a, a great uh podcast here so for our folks uh you can reach us our listening uh, audience if you have any suggestions uh, you want to make some suggestions, you can reach out at hello at CCSINet.com. So outside of that, I'd like to thank, uh, again, uh, Brockovic, our CISO from a uh, local bank here in the area, for taking his time to, uh, to share his thoughts and wisdom. Matt Pascucci, CCSI's Cybersecurity Practice Manager, for, for hosting and leading this, uh, this session for today. So this is Larry Bianculli, Until next time, I'd like to thank our listening audience, and uh, please tune in again for next month's uh, edition of CCSI Podcast Got Tech Talk.